Hi guys, welcome back to The Creative Process. Today we have an interview with the Classical Theatre of Harlem. The Classical Theatre of Harlem provides theatrical productions, educational and literary programs for free or at little cost to Harlem residents, organizations, and all who seek Harlem as a cultural destination. Its productions have received a Drama Desk, an Obie Award, and New York Times Critics Pick Awards. From July 5th to 29th, they bring an Afrofuturistic take on Twelfth Night to Marcus Garvey Park. The NAACP and Obie Award winner, Ty Jones is producing artistic director responsible for creating the Uptown Shakespeare in the Park series and other community initiatives. Alan Gilmore has played Othello, Iago, and created the role of James Hewlett in the African Company Presents Richard III at the Public Theater. He makes his CTH debut in Twelfth Night. Without further ado, let's hop right in. Ty Jones, Alan Gilmore, the Classical Theater of Harlem, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So congratulations on the production of Twelfth Night coming to the Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem and then on tour. First, Ty, walk us through the history and mission of the Classical Theater of Harlem. So we've been around since 1999. I personally became involved with the company in 2003, did a number of productions with them. We hit the financial crisis in 08 and 09. And that sort of exposed the company in terms of leadership and uh, deficit of our finance. I was watching this company that was built on the backs of young, hungry, vulnerable actors of color about to go away through no fault of its own. I am an actor, you know, I've done some TV, film, commercials, things of that nature. So without a salary, just tried to put the company on my back and find a way to make sure that we stayed alive. And fortunately that happened. We are no longer in debt. Now we're working on what we call our North Star, which is a home. So we're hoping to get some other verbal institutions like Harlem Opera and Harlem Chamber work together to create the Harlem Classical Arts Complex. We are in our infancy about it. We're hoping that you know, raises our visibility because we want the McKenzie Scotts of the world to pay attention to us. We can build something where the 10-year-old version of us can have an artistic home. I just wanted to say that I happen to be part of a company that has the same journey in Chicago, a company called Congo Square Theater Company. I was just listening to that as Ty was talking about. And I just want to say, Congo, we are two in Chicago, are back on our feet and out of debt, et cetera. And one of the things that in the ensemble, our ensemble runs the company, said is that these large theaters, they get all of this diversity and they'll do these plays that, you know, use actors of color and designers of color and maybe subject matter of color. Maybe they'll do Wilson, of course, you know, everybody's doing that. And companies like Classical Theater of Harlem, companies like Congo Square Theater Company, we're always employing persons of color. We're always doing either from the African diaspora or the classics and the African-American lens and the lens of the African diaspora those big, big chunks of money that those big white theaters get, there's an imbalance there. And that's why we still try to find a home for the Classical Theater of Harlem. That's why Congo Square Theater in Chicago has been in the past few years going to make a home so that our audience knows where we are all the time. And Ty, you also came up as an actor. So how does that inform your artistic direction practice and how you collaborate with the whole ensemble? So as you know, I am an actor and the way it informs the creative process is that all actors are entrepreneurs. We need to make sure that we take care of our instrument. And I think the same way that we take care of ourselves to make sure that we're prepared and ready for auditions and plays and TV and film, 
And I'm somebody who believes that one should take the attention off of themselves to be available to whatever the words of that play have. Because it's tough. There's sometimes a difficult game to play when you as an actor want to bring yourself to a role, which I think is great. But then there's also making sure that you are doing what the play is asking for that character to do. And so there's always that, that part of the creative process is how do you manage that? How do you make sure that ultimately what it comes down to is being of service to something bigger than yourself, being of service to the play, being of service to your castmates. I like to look at theater or any project that I do. I want to be available to whatever is going on to make sure that it's the best that it can possibly be. I want Alan to be the best Alan that he can possibly be. So how can I make sure that he can deliver the best Alan for whatever he's doing? And I try to do that for a couple touch points when it comes to any sort of creative process, whether it's film, TV, or theater. And so we're just intrigued about some of the creative conversations you'd have about this spin on Twelfth Night, the Afrofuturism aspect of it. Well, it leaps from the brilliant mind of our director, Carl Cofield. Technology is used and played with, and we'll see how it influences behaviors and emotions, you know, how it can help or be a draw. My character particularly is sort of a old-fashioned person, doesn't really engage with the technology that much, but it also makes some just plain old beautiful design, particularly from my perspective, the lighting designer, the costume designer, and the projections designer. So it's really going to be the, just the, the look of it. It's not your grandfather's Twelfth Night. How do you find the connection between the two topics? I found it interesting how you went from Shakespeare to the African diaspora, specifically Afrofuturism, because it's such a far distance from the original era the story was written. Like, how do you go from where art thou to where you at? I find that so fascinating. And does it change the story at all? I believe that these plays are living arguments and that when you actually read the full text, not cut down versions of them, but full text, you'll see that Shakespeare was comment on the ruling class. And for some reason, he found a way to comment on the workings of folks who make decisions in society. Now, I think what's tended to happen over the years is that the ruling class has essentially taken over how we see these plays. So Henry V, when you read the entire play, you actually see the war criminal. When they talk about the wooing scene, famous wooing scene, you know, Kenneth Branagh and stuff like that, beautiful movies. When you read the entire thing, he's basically telling Catherine, you don't have a choice. I'll start this war up all over again if I have to. We talk about Romeo and Juliet, right? Oftentimes it's just about these two star-crossed lovers and even the way that they're cast is sort of this traditional hackneyed way of casting whoever. The play talks about being behind Verona walls, that these two households both alike in dignity, but they're behind walls. What's that about? Why would two families need to put themselves behind walls? Do they think that they're special? What's wrong with those people outside of the walls? Romeo himself says, I'd rather die inside the walls than be banished outside of them. So, the, you know, there's something about these two dignified households who do things that are so ridiculous and stupid that their children die. You know, what is that about? So I think What's great about what we do is that we try to make sure that we keep these plays as living arguments, that it doesn't matter through what lens you see them through. Whatever lens that you see them through, at least presented by classical theater of Harvard, we think is the kind that speaks to a 21st century audience, that it is a sort of locked in this way that has been traditionally seen. 
but it doesn't mean that the words have changed. It doesn't mean that the themes have changed. And it doesn't mean that the comments on the ruling classes have changed. One that I did a few years ago that, you know, speaks very clearly to our age is Julius Caesar. To be able to do these plays in Harlem with a BIPOC cast just says, this is about you too. Because in this country, again, kind of like Tyron's saying, the ruling class has taken over it and sometimes remove this work from exposure to people of color. So for a long time, in my experience, growing up in this country as a black kid, I have found that just the casting, the traditional casting of Shakespeare and the classics is so racist, but it does speak to all of us. It speaks to the human being. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. The human being is essentially the same person I remember when we did the Scottish play and oftentimes when I would do interviews about it, immediately they go to famous text from the place tomorrow in this petty days from day to day, so on and so forth. Everyone knows that. And for me, I think differently about powerful text within that play. So what gets me is in these cases, we still have instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. That's Malcolm X saying, that's the chickens coming home to roost, Wow, you know? That is the way in which empires behave with other countries where, where we unilaterally will go into a sovereign nation and take their resources. And guess what? Sometimes that stuff turns on you. And next thing you know, you might be in a position where you are aimed for the faults of those who came before you. We're seeing that right now. We saw it on television last night in those interviews and in those meetings with the January 6th. I happen to have missed the one that happened on Tuesday, but talk about the support that he had for this man that was running for re-election, but it came home to roost when the man did not win. He wanted to cheat and Rusty Bauer not help him and paid professionally and in a domestic way that were horrible that he described. And, you know, this is still the same thing that Ty has been talking about. This yeah. again, to me, speaks to Julius Caesar and the leadership and etc. Yeah. I, there are plays that even talk about how but well, one, you know, gets so tethered to the moment that they don't see anything else around them. I mean, we've seen it in these texts, and I think it's our job as artists to present it in a way. I actually think there are many ways to present it to ourselves. You can use comedy, music, dance to be able to speak to anybody who wants to be a contributing citizen in society. I'm just glad that we have these great plays and great texts and great actors to be able to use these vessels to speak these words, we hope that we can move people. And we hope that these are the kind of plays that ignite discourse, you know? Now I have to admit, I'm not trying to make someone talk about something. All I want to do is present art, right? And I truly believe that when people are gathered and I believe people should gather, we are social beings that when they gather and they see great art, I want to do it without an agenda. I hope that at the end of seeing that piece of art, their hearts begin to beat and sink. I believe that all progress begins with a conversation. So if this art has created some sort of conversation where that person to the front, back, left or right of you, who may never speak to you or who would ever speak to you because we have the most diverse audiences in New York City, I'll put us up against anybody. And you also work very much with the community, which isn't always the case with the big, it's kind of hard to do with the Broadway productions where the audience is so many out of towners, but it's you have so many educational initiatives and you're really involved. I don't think Broadway is designed to 
create community. It's designed to make money. But tell us about some of your community initiatives and how do you get to know your audience uh, and you have a, a closer relationship. So some of the community initiatives that we do are making sure that other cultural organizations can share things with us. So during the summer, we invite Young People's Course of New York City, Chamber Music Center of New York City, Jazz World, Harlem Opera, Harlem Chamber Players to do pre-shows. Like on Fridays, when Jazzmobile is there, you get jazz and theater that evening. It's one of these things where I think it's important that multiple cultural organizations have to know that we're all essentially singing from the same sheet of music and being of support to one another. And you're getting all of that and it's free. Part of the engine behind this is Harlem itself. So a hundred years ago, the Harlem Renaissance happened and we're celebrating that right now. It was a time period. We're standing on the shoulders of people who were under stress a hundred years ago. They were under siege. They did not have access to healthcare. They were experiencing police brutality. And Harlem a hundred years ago was quite diverse neighborhood. A number of the people that we hear about today that are part of the Harlem Renaissance, patrons who were white, who were, were foreigners, the gay community was very strong. So they knew at that time that they didn't have any political representation. So they had to look to each other to be able to have the kind of critical conversations of the day so that they eventually had Adam Clayton Powell become a representative. They eventually got hospital. And if you look and read some of the materials back in those days, the way the people got together to talk about those critical issues of the day was through the arts. And I feel that that's going to be very important nowadays, particularly in the neighborhood of Harlem, where we are going to have to look to one another to try to solve some of the issues in a self-determined way. As you look back at the canon, I know you're doing classical works, but it's really interesting the question about who decides what is in the canon and what for you makes a masterwork. Great question. So here's the simple thing of it. We do classic plays, we do revivals, we do musicals and contemporary plays as well. Why do we do contemporary? Because we will read plays and if our team believes the play is excellent and that if given the test of time, they will become a classic, we call it a future classic. And why do we do that? Because we've asserted that this piece of work by Dominique Morsatoro or Kemp Powered, Betty Shania, we determined that their work is worthy of being called a future classic because just because it's new doesn't mean that uh, it isn't worthy to be seen over and over and over again. And there's not something to learn from those pieces. But I'm clear that those playwrights that I mentioned before, I know that there's some argument in academia about, you know, the dead white guys and stuff like that. When you actually just read the words and read these plays in full, they are commenting on the ruling class. Many of them are. It isn't just art for art's sake. And commenting on them at the same time as being patronized by them. And so how do you handle that? Because you're also kind of doing the same thing. You have to also fundraise. Yeah. So that is the challenge of doing not-for-profit theater is that we're dependent upon foundations and government. But you can bet that I want to find a way to have a revenue stream come into our organization. I have to be so dependent upon it. But I think that that's the way this has been set up. But many things are set up that way where, you know, you're not looking to bite the hand that feeds you, but the hand that feeds you kind of know that they're in power, like being in philanthropy. And again, I'm thankful for the people who give us money. But the idea essentially is sort of this desire of kings. There's a great book by Lewis Lampton that talks about this. There's something about Americans and wanting to have certain fiefdoms meaning that people will genuflect to you. So they'll give you money. And there's something that's embedded in what we do. We still, to this day, for some reason, have deference over the king and queen of England. I don't know, but we do. So there's something that's embedded in us 
And who knows, maybe through these plays that we do, we can start to unplug ourselves from that. But in doing so, I think we have to have the leadership in place. I want Classical Theater of Harlem to be a healthy middle-class organization. I'm not trying to be the Kennedy Center or anything like that, because I truly believe that a healthy middle-class, let me take it out of theater for a second, a healthy middle-class leads to a healthy society. Societies don't work if it's just rich people and just poor people. There must be a healthy middle-class. And I feel the same way about presenting organizations, class across the United States of arts presenting organizations. Then I know that the arts will be healthy. I know that the arts will be in good shape for a long time to come. Let me just tag on to that too. And I have a history in Chicago and Chicago Shakespeare Theater is maybe 40 years old. They were a bar and now they have a multi-million dollar endowment and budget and they have a spectacular venue on Navy Pier out over Lake Michigan and they pay $1 a year rent for that. And they were gifted this by the city of Chicago and maybe the state of Illinois, et cetera. Goodman Theater, the same thing. They have all of their facilities in one place. They build their scenes, their sets, et cetera. They have the rehearsal, they have a cage space. And what I'm saying is this theater here, Classical Theater of Harlem is, what did you say, Ty? 20, 20. 20 something years old, but still kind of, you know, struggling. Same thing with, as I mentioned before, Condo Square Theater. And I'm like, where are the middle-class black theaters in this country? Where are they? Who's doling out that kind of Goodman, Chicago, Shakespeare theater money to the black theaters doing what classical theater of Harlem, what, what uh, Congo Square Theater, doing what they do? Who's doing that? And, and there are people out there with access to deeper pools of funding. Our job is to try to reach those folks. But in doing so, we have to make sure that you don't self-sabotage, do things that actually uh, upend your creative process. Because oftentimes what tends to happen is that folks put so much work into this that they're looking for some sort of reward. And that's when self-sabotage can set in. Because at times in this world, at least in theater, you need to make for yourself the rewards. Don't look to amounts of money coming in as a measure of success, though that is part of it. It just, it's about being very measured in structure. And I think that's what it is about being middle-class. You can't spend money that you don't have, right? But you still got to keep working. And I'm okay with working. I like to work. I love to work. And the other part of it is, I do believe that, you know, in terms of funding institutions, they have decided. So you'll see a bunch of money going to these institutions that have been around for a long time. And even the new ones that come up, they may decide that this matters and that this thing over here deserves the crumbs. That's kind of the way in which black organizations have had to deal with. Now we're in a, a time where hopefully classical theater farm, other theater companies can be a template for other theater companies to use to say, okay, look, if indeed you want to build your arts uh, program, here's an example on how to do that. And your North star should be sustainability as opposed to being the biggest or the baddest or the best or so on and so forth. There are reviewers out there. This is a strange thing that theater does. You know, there are some reviewers that are so powerful that it can affect your ticket sales. Why? A lot of times these reviewers have never produced a show, never directed a show, never acted in a show, but somehow we've bought into the idea that they learned about what critique is in an academic setting that they can position themselves to have the power of opening and closing shows. So these are kinds of things where it's important for us running a black theater company that I've got to build my own audience. I've got to make sure that it's the people that say, you know what, you matter. 
we're going to make sure you're around. If it means instead of me chasing, although I will chase the $100,000 grant or half a million dollar grant, I'll do that. But if I can get a seat of humanity to give me, you know, $100 a piece, they're the ones that are showing up and they're the ones that'll make sure that your theater's around for generations. I feel like I'm in the choir getting ready to say so many amens and so many hosannas with what you're talking about, Ty, you, you know, so very true. <laughs> so on the topic of money, since we're on that right now, and on the topic of your free shows, I want to ask, why do you guys find it so important, your dedication to producing free stories in this form? Because obviously we have libraries, and books are circulated in a free form all the time, but when it comes to theater specifically, this is hyper-exclusivity there due to financial causes. So why do you find that so important? I think that theater, ultimately, if I were to back up a bit, is about people gathering. It's about bringing people together, again, to see a piece of art with no other agenda. That's ultimately what it's down to. And uh, you can go to you can Netflix and chill. You can go watch a movie in your home. It's built for that thing. Theater specifically, for me, is about bringing people together. It is about breathing together and having that experience together. Because to me, Theater is not actors up on a stage doing a play. It is actually the thing in that electricity in the air, in the chemistry that happens between an audience and the thing that they are watching live together. Theater is very powerful, odorless, it's tasteless. It is that electricity that happens between the performers and the audience. And why shouldn't that be free? You know, why shouldn't that be for everyone? And the thing that I wanted to sort of tack on to the uh, question that you posed, Lauren, was, you know, Shakespeare and Ibsen, August Wilson, and all of these people, this is performance literature. It's not to be read solely in an English class or pursued solely in an academic environment. It must be seen. That's why Shakespeare wrote it must be lived in and seen and experienced in its natural form. You don't get everything from it simply to read it. It's performance literature. It must be seen. It must be experienced. We, we've got to be the arbiters of our own work. We've got to be the ones that have agency to say, yes, this is how we see it. Simple as that. But, and be unapologetic about it. And other people to say, oh, I get that. Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that was quote unquote good or bad or if the review was blah, blah, blah. But I got something from that. So I'm willing to support that. And I'm willing to come back and see what other conversations they're having at this arts venue. You mentioned there, it becomes a spiritual process. I think this gathering together of experiencing a play as one body. So what is your faith? What is my faith? Great question. In the literal sense, I was raised Christian. But who I am is the possibility of creating some sort of listening or awareness of humanity. And that's something that I can work on to the day that I die. And I trust that the work that I'm doing will leave some sort of legacy. And I'm going to have faith that the work that I'm doing, somebody out there will say that it matters and try to move us towards a more perfect union, move us towards understanding humanity more. And you have children there also in the arts? Yeah. So I have three kids. My 15-year-old is a boy. He's a cellist, my 13-year-old. Her name's Rowan, girl. She's a violinist. And my youngest, Emery, is uh, a pianist. And she's 11. My oldest boy, his name is Caden. And they are in the arts. And I've told them, I was like, you know, if you want to make a life in the arts, I'm fully supportive of it. Use your talents to explore the world. It's important. It's a struggle, but it's... So many people have jobs where they don't feel a fulfillment. And they feel it so far 
from who they are. So I think that we're blessed, those of us who work in the arts, despite the struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think that we should have a further conversation about the word struggle, because I think oftentimes we just tether that to money. And I think that's why a lot of parents are worried about their kids going into the arts. It's like, oh, you'll struggle and all this other stuff. And I've actually said the opposite to parents whenever they talk to me about it. I say it this way. When one goes to med school, they don't go to med school and then hopefully have a backup. When they go to law school, they don't go to law school and hopefully have a backup. And I think if you're going to go to art school, it's the same way. You don't go to art school with the hopefully having a backup. And that's why I've also said earlier, you have to be a self-starter in multiple levels and multiple ways. This isn't where sitting back rarely leads to success, whatever success is for you. And I think that that's what art is about is creation. You're constantly creating. So I would always welcome an adult beverage about whether that's it's a, it's a struggle because I really truly believe that it, it's necessary. Challenge, I should have said. I have to admit that the times that it feels like a, a challenge or a struggle, I think would be for anybody. So when I notice how people behave when a black organization has found a way on its own to create Uptown Shakespeare in the park, but then all of a sudden the people with whom you work in the park start to act like Robert Moses did back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, where he purposely erected things to keep Black folks from being able to enjoy parts of New York City, whether it's a bridge that wouldn't allow a public bus to get underneath it, whatever it was. It's always interesting that Black folks have always had to improvise to be able to make sure that they could be contributing citizens in this society. We've been in every single war, and trust me, we come back from those wars still treated like second-class citizens, but we still continue to be part of this beautiful experiment that is the United States of America. My mother was in the military for 22 years, and thankfully, because of it, I was able to explore the world, learn different languages, but I walked away from that knowing that we are all far more like than you're different. Whether I was in Taiwan, whether I was in the Jordan and the Middle East, whether I was in South Africa, whether I was in Germany or, or different parts of the United States. I think that's why I love the arts, that the job is to make sure we gather, we have fellowship, and I have faith in that. Right, I love that answer, but I have a question that connects to earlier when we were talking about Shakespeare and the original message that was kind of overturned by elitist from the future and from the generations of now. But basically speaking on struggle, I realized that Shakespeare writes a lot about struggle and about messiness and just about all the craziness that goes on in society, specifically in the upper class, but also in the lower class as well. And I was wondering if you thought that if Shakespeare's message through his works have been colonized in a sense by the generations that came after him. And if that like colonization has made his work seem more, I guess I hate this word so much, but make it seem more respectable than it really is. So the answer, I think, yes. But again, okay, when it was written, it was written in a time where, you know, there wasn't a literate society, right? This was a time where the Duke and the Duchess and the Kings, you're allowed to write, you're allowed to write, you're allowed to write, entertain me or whatever. You know, in a time where these folks weren't literate and ruling people of the day said that you can write, you can write, you can entertain me, so on and so forth. And I think those who had the ability and the literacy to do that were smart enough to write in a way that they were commenting on the very people who gave them permission uh, to write. Moliere. Yes. Very, very much. So, end of the day, yes. Has it been colonized? Yeah, it has. But that's just because those who had the power to put these on are probably going to do it through their lens. You know, at, at one point in time, you know, women weren't on stages. It was men. 
doing all this. So things have changed. The stories remain the same. So there's something about the stories that thread through history. And perhaps those classic plays and those writers, maybe they knew that indeed these stories will cross centuries, cross times, because we as human beings tend to do the same things over and over again. The one thing that in my studies that I've seen that when I, and I've said this before, when I've read the entire play, not how it's been cut up through someone else's lens, all of a sudden I get a different, an entirely different world. You know, so true. These works, particularly Shakespeare, they come from another country to our cultural grandfather, grandmother, you know, oh yes, England. Anytime you saw movies from Hollywood about Rome or Shakespeare, everybody had a British accent. People in Rome were speaking Italian. So you're looking at this from a perspective of somebody who has said, oh, but the high, most elite form has to be British or has to be, you know, so when you see these pieces of art, Shakespeare in particular, I'm talking about coming from Europe and into this country, well, we have thought of ourselves in the 20th century and previous to the 19th century as kind of these wild west hillbillies who don't know anything, savages trying to tame a savage land and build a society and build a culture, etc. But we're getting it now from England and from other locations in Europe and thinking that it's so holy and it's so this and so that. And so now you have, for my money, Chekhov, that's very funny, but people are treating it like it's the, the holy grail. Like, don't you laugh at Chekhov, this is serious stuff. So you sit in a Chekhov show and it is the most boring, slow, but people are sitting there like, well, I have to take this like my castor oil medicine to get my culture. Or Shakespeare, which has been done, as I have already suggested in this country, so racist, so white, and not let any other voices in there. To me, when Shakespeare was done in its own time, in its own culture, it was just like what we're doing right now at the Classical Theater of Harlem. It was people who were Irish, who were Scottish, who were Welsh, Londoners, Brits, and it was, it was of its time. So I see no reason that the classics... Or not, I don't know why it should be. We're still watching people today in 2022 in pumpkin pants. Do you know what I'm saying? He, he was not creating it for a music. Yeah, it was for the masses. It, he was not creating it to be a museum piece. It was for the masses that are sitting there right now. And it still is. Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Chiname and I'm a rising junior at NYU, majoring in English with the creative writing track. I was very excited to participate in this interview with the Classical Harlem Theater Group, which is full of fellow black creatives who are incredibly accomplished. I myself am a writer and YouTuber. I learned a lot about what being part of a theater and what Shakespeare meant to them. The thing that stood out to me most about their words are their emphasis on community. I actually love theater, and whenever I manage to see a show, I enjoy the experience, but somehow a fact that I took for granted was how theater is one of the few mediums of art where storytelling is formed through human interaction, from actor to actor, but also from actor to audience. The chemistry between every person in the room of a performance is essential to conveying the story in an effective way, and creates a unique experience every time. Furthermore, theater is unique because the story can change, or more accurately, can be illuminated in different ways depending on which cast is performed 
performing. Each actor brings a different voice and interpretation of a character, which enhances the experience. This is one of the true beauties of this form of storytelling, and it's something you don't get if you simply read a play. Allen said it best by using the phrase performance literature. It is not adequate to analyze and understand a play unless it is performed the way it was meant to be. This whole interview reminded me that art is a conversation. Even when you play one part of it, the audience is integral to bringing and taking some magic from it. It reminds me to always be cognizant of what I'm trying to convey through my work, and also to be alright with letting the audience take what they want from what is written. Something else that fascinated me, of course, was the relationship the classical theater of Harlem has with Shakespearean works. It was eye-opening to hear how the idea of Shakespeare has been transformed by elites through time from what it originally was. Entertainment, but also a critique on class structure. Nowadays, people use Shakespeare as a class barrier. Like having access to analyzing his works makes someone quote-unquote academically superior to someone else. But at the end of the day, Shakespeare is messy and fun and carries a message deeper than prestige. It can connect people from various backgrounds and isn't just meant for one people to digest and enjoy. The classical theater of Harlem reminds us of that through their work on and behind the stage. That's all I have. Back to the interview. What is your connection to music? I mean, I know you're talented in a number of disciplines. I know to be actors and to be artistic directors. So... I think in the context of play, I am person, but my taste, my aesthetic is to always put music and dance in a theatrical production. That's just what I like to do. And in terms of this play, Twelfth Night, that we're doing now, the spark that puts the whole play is that very line. Music be the food of love, play on. And music is threaded throughout this entire play. Now, if I were to look at it from a 30,000 foot view or a global perspective about this play, again, taking it out of this sort of the individualistic aspect of the play. Here's how I think. I, I think that every human being, regardless of your taste, connects to music in some way. And that connection to music, again, is how we are far more alike than we are different. And that's what's so beautiful about this play. And that's what I love about music. And I find it a, an important tool used in helping to tell the stories of these classics or whatever we do, revivals, new plays. I want to say that the music in this play is phenomenal. Composed designer is Fred Kennedy. Yep. And uh, for my money, he has written some stuff with. There's a singer in the show. I'm going to say his name. Israel Aaron. E-R-R-O-N-F-O-R-D. A spectacular singer. You got to hear it. You got to believe it. Yes. And of course, we're speaking, it's Black Music Appreciation Month. As you reflect on it, how much Black music has really, I think, been the soundtrack for America and the world. I mean, in terms of... You know, Mia, that is so true. I'm sure you remember this movie that came out, Ty, this is years ago, called The Big Chill. All of their music was Motown. All of their music was really essentially this protest music of the 60s. This music that would not have been birthed if not for protest, not a single person of color, not a single storyline at, at all, but it had been appropriated to this work because it is the soundtrack, not only of black America. And it's going to keep happening though. So we just have the most outraged at that, because, <laughs> but it's going to keep happening and we just need to be able to create spaces for ourselves. And the truth is, I think you create those spaces because they know it's genuine. They know it's authentic. Yesterday it was bad here in New York. Yes. So I don't know if you heard here in New York that essentially the Supreme Court said, I I'm going to truncate it, that 
if you happen to have a weapon, you do not necessarily get a license to, usually it's a conceal and carry, and you have to have a license to be able to do that. Basically, they said, New York, you don't have to do that anymore. It's a, you know, it's a, against the constitution to do that. So I'm somebody who, there was a reason why that was made for New York many years ago, because people live on top of one another here. And the way that resources are allocated in these big cities, we know they have been racist in the way those resources have been allocated. And unfortunately, we're in a place where I, it's called me Pollyanna or whatever, but this is where the artists are going to have to speak up. And we're going to have to, again, use our vessels to be able to hopefully move towards a more perfect union. We, we can't give up now. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. It can't be a democracy if you don't have control over your own body and my own. Too. Right. And democracy is a really important word here because the democracy won't work unless there's truth, right? We have to have truth first. We have two political parties, essentially. All right. And they conspire to make sure each other stays in power in some way. In other words, a, a Green Party is not going to pop up. There's going to be nothing that's going to ever challenge uh, the right either. It's going to be these two parties. I want you to imagine a life where you only have a choice of two cars to choose from or two places to live. At the end of the day, the idea that we only have a choice of these two tells me that this process is essentially going to be a failed one. The concentration of wealth and power are going to the few. Um, and these last couple of years, all that money that was printed up and how it went upwards, that's not a good thing for our society. It just isn't. Uh, in theater, I'll give you an example. So I'm really happy that the government and foundations, you know, came to, you know, help our sector and, and provided money for it. There were literally two pots of money. One was called the Shuttered Venues Operators Grant. I think that's what it was called. And the other one was called PPP, uh, Payroll Protection Plan. So the venues, oftentimes these institutions that already have endowments, my colleagues in those institutions told me that the money that they were given, they saw a windfall after that was uh, presented to them. Whereas the PPP, that's what we were eligible for. It allowed me to extend the runway for the people who work for the Classical Theater of Harlem. No one got furloughed. No one got fired. Everybody kept their health insurance. But we weren't sitting with a bunch of cash, leftover cash, to be able to absorb inflation or increases in fees or increases in salaries. Whereas my colleagues who got the shuttered venues money, who were already institutions that were paid, that's not I'm going to besmirch where they are in terms of being an institution, but they have endowments. They got a bunch of money. Not only did they get a bunch of money, their endowments also swell. There are some institutions, educational ones, so on and so forth, who saw their endowments increase in two years, anywhere from 18% to 30%. That usually is over a long stretch of a couple decades, right? In two years, they saw their endowments swell that much. So when you push all that money and concentrate the well to the few, that ultimately, once you go past that threshold, that could lead to the kinds of problems that stories are written about, fall of Rome, the fall of empires, that nature. And I think we've been warned about it. Our artists have told us this. And, and maybe that's why, you know, I love doing this. It's my way of being able to, again, I, I feel like I'm saying this at, at nausea. It's a way of being able to say we are far more like than we're different. There are going to be some tragedies that happen. That, that's the way of the world. There are going to be some breakdowns that happen, but there will be breakthroughs because we have to continue to trust that we are all part of this creative process. I just want to dovetail and say, you know, what you just said about how these large endowments grew 
during the shutdown, but the smaller black theaters did not get that same mm-hmm. thing. And that's how the system, that's how whoever's in charge pains the imbalance. And all of a sudden, these big institutions are now going to decide what is art because they have the money and we're going to be jam. Oh, can we use your spaces? Because we can't afford, you know, one here. It's the next 18 months are going to be very interesting. It shouldn't be that artists have to go through struggle to make good art. And just on that point about democracy in America and elsewhere, but particularly there, uh, it does seem like it's devolving uh, for a long time into an oligarchy. It's just, I wish that the the two parties could collaborate together in some kind of creative process where they want it, like you, you don't want any member of your team to fail. Yeah. Well, all of our representatives are multimillionaires, so they're probably going to look out for their interests first. All of these derivatives and things of that nature. You need to have People, even the idea of separation of church and state, separation of powers, because then we can check one another. If they're all bought by the same people, it's actually fascism. When a corporation can decide how your life goes, you know, we'll see. We'll keep fighting now. Good to hear it. And on the topic of just everything awful that's going on right now, there's a lot of reversion, I'd say, happening in the political sphere in this country. And you're talking about how on your shows, you choose the shows that you produce based on what's happening in the world or in the country specifically. So I was wondering how your show Twelfth Night might relate to what you hope that it'll bring to the community or like how you'll think it'll help the community in general. So again, I don't like to tell people what they should think about a play, right? But for me, what Twelfth Night is, is that uh, there's some questions of identity and there's a lot of questions about identity going on right now. and without getting into some sort of academic conversation about it. At the end of the day, it would be great if we got to a place was like, why do we care? Why is it your business? Like, you know, there's high level of musical fun and mistaken identity and all this other stuff that kind of brings levity to the whole entire conversation of like, is it really that big of a deal? (laughs) Now, then it ends though, where Avoli, he has an issue with it or whatever's going on within the play. He clearly is hurt, and he, I think, represents a lot of people in our world today. For some reason, they have experienced with, it's embedded in them that something's wrong, and the world is wrong, and they've tried some austere way to keep it going one way, and even though they're a hypocrite about it, that we have those people. There's no real bow that you can put at the end of this play. There's still that element where we're going to always have to work, because who knows if the malbullies of the world end up being like a Dionysus somewhere else mm-hmm. and really screwing things up. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do something here, screw things up, and I don't give a damn, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. I don't know, right? That's the fun part of having this conversation. But I think, ultimately, you look at Twelfth Night and all these mistaken identities and people playing different parts, and does it really matter? Mm. Does it really matter, you know? It's, it's about class as well. And this folds right back into what we were talking about before about who's in power and what are they doing with that power and so it's real sort of a story about who's in power and who's not sure enough there's plenty of beautiful music beautiful clothes visually it is going to be stunning and then there's comedy then there's drama and faith you know yes you think of 12th night as a comedy and you know uh, academically that's what they call it but interestingly, it doesn't end on a whole note. You know, it doesn't end on a core. When I look at a play, I always say, something's out of balance in this universe as we begin the play. And that's what the playwright is going to tell us, teach us, discuss. 
and they're going to finish in a place where nine times out of 10, the universe has set itself in some different way, usually in balance, not always, but these classical plays, and especially what it got epically as a comedy, usually end in some sort of even note balance. Shakespeare, of course, is going to be different. Just a few of his comedies do not. And this one most certainly does not. Yeah. And, and the only thing I'll add on that, it's thing about that how societal rules aren't always what they say. And in this, all the world's stage from the Bard's works or from this world of theater, do you, each of you have a favorite soliloquy that speaks to this power or to the beauty of art? I, I am tethered to, it's called The Creation by James Wilkin Johnson, luminary of the Harlem Renaissance. He went to Fisk University, wrote a book called God's Trombones, and probably, in my opinion, the most well-known of that piece is called The Creation. But you asked me, there is something that I learned in church, and it's been a thread throughout my life. So my mom in the military, she was at every single base, she made me do something. So she's like, you got to read a poem or something. So at every base, there's called a non-commissioned officers club, the NCO club. So every month, Jimmy Jones's son, had to do something at the NCO club and she made me do it. And I learned the creation when I was nine years old. And I still know it to this day, 40 plus years later. And it was actually a piece that I used that I to get into graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I was not an actor growing up. I was more of an athlete. I played sports and stuff like that. Even as an undergrad, I was a communications major. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. My mom was a journalist. So I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. But then March of my senior year, I got introduced to Steve Harris. I think was oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was, he graduated from the PTTP at the University of Delaware. Oh, wow. So I was under that at the time. Oh. I used to see him on campus and I'd be like, hey, what's up, brother? And we started talking a bit. And another brother named, like, you show up this shit for it, man. Just go for it. So they sat me down. They helped me memorize Edmund from King Lear. Not because I really knew it or anything. Oh, I got it. That's it. Because it was short. <laughs> I was like, what is this Shakespeare stuff, man? Right. So they helped me memorize. They're like, don't stress the pronoun. And uh, this is what a lined ending is. And so I, I learned it and I memorized it just the way that it just kind of told me to do it. And I always had creation in my back pocket because that's just what I learned wow. as a kid. And now I happen to be running a theater in Harlem. We're talking about the Harlem Renaissance. I actually want to resurrect the creation. And do it with Emerge 125 oh, as part of the Riot Park thing. Yeah, I'm, so I'm thinking about how there's sort of a full circle here. Who knew? James Weldon Johnson, did he know that he was going to be writing this piece that was going to allow me to be in a position to go to an institution that allowed me to get my master's in fine arts and classical theater at a place where I'm um, part of a theater that I hope the 10-year-old versions of us will be able to be like, yeah, I want to do this. Wow. You know what I mean? Who knows? So... so that's why I'm, I feel like I'm somebody that's on that spectrum and things will just keep going. Yeah. So, you know. Wow. That's incredible, man. That is incredible. Can we hear a few lines just? Yeah, sure. And God stepped out on stage. He looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. As far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything. Blacker than a hundred midnights down in the cypress swamp. The God smiled and the light broke. And the darkness rolled up on one side and the light stood shining on the other. And God said, that's good. I mean, listening to Ty talk about his experience, mine would have to be the love song of J. Alfred Poofrock. But for some reason, oh, that's about to me. You know, even now I get emotional thinking about it. For some reason to me, so 
intimately. So like, oh my, I always say this. I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I am an attendant Lord, one that will do to swell the progress. To advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use. Politic, cautious, and meticulous. But at times a bit obtuse. At times almost ridiculous. Almost. At times. The fool. I get it, folks. Don't say mad because, well, you just get it. It's me. You just have to kind of know me, I, you know. So anyway, there it is. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what have been some of those important life lessons for you and what is the importance of the arts? That's an enormous question because my own journey through life and the arts, it's all kind of woven together and you're one person and you're having all these experiences through your life and through your work. It's been a rocky journey being a man of color, growing up in the South, finally owning myself as a member of the LGBTQ plus community and how the world was not nearly so friendly, tolerant, if you will, of either of those categories, black, gay. And it meant that I had to really do a lot of soul searching, a lot of work on myself in order to finally come into my own skin and be the man and be the artist that I was intending to be. And, and on the other side of it, I think the arts was a big part of that to give me the confidence, give me the healing strength of character and perspective. And I think that I just did a play just a, a few months ago, Choir Boy, that healed me in ways, quite frankly, I didn't even know I needed healing. I was walking around with these old wounds from my adolescence and from my childhood, that play spoke to me. So again, I say we're always getting, and I used to be a school teacher also, so I can speak to arts and how it affects young people. And I say that we're always defunding arts and arts programs and going with science and going with, and I don't want to, I don't want to give shade to those other curriculums. English and reading are critical, but I think the art teaches us things that nothing else can. It teaches us teamwork, teaches us self-reliance, and it teaches us stuff about ourselves that we really need to know and understand. I would say this, all things that are going on in the world, I truly believe they've happened before. And oftentimes it's the artists that let us know about how we deal with them. From a perspective as an artistic director, I like to try to see what's going on in the world and try to choose plays that speak to what's going on. So I'll just give an example. So at 2016, we did the Scottish play. I believe that the Scottish play is the most significant play in Shakespeare's canon. 2016 was a politically significant year. We also did a play called Fit for a Queen. That play was about Queen Hachette was a pharaoh. She ran Egypt. I actually thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. The next year we did, I believe, Antigone, Tears. At the post d'Artagnan, these people that are from different backgrounds, having to figure out the way to bring about some sort of consensus, to work together, to fight evil, cardinal Richelieu. We did Antigone, side, another side, clash, bad things happen. Did Bacchae. The Bacchae for me is all about hyper-individualism. And you know, everybody has one of these things that makes them feel that they're very special. And everything that person says needs to be heard and talked to, so on and so forth. So I think the reason why the arts are so important 
is because we can reach back to plays that are 2,000 years old, and they have actually dealt with almost every single issue that we're dealing with today. So I look at classic plays as living arguments, and that if we take the time to listen to we can move people in profound ways. That's why we still do these Greek classics, because it still speaks to the human experience. What young people need to know is history, unfettered, unmolested, then get a, gain a knowledge of themselves. And once they gain a knowledge of themselves, they'll see how they are far more alike than other folks. And the other thing I would walk away with is this, especially if they want to be in the arts, is that every day that you miss working on your art, you've missed a week. Every week that you've missed working on your art, you've missed a month. And if you see a year working on something, then you should probably choose to do something else. Yeah, because if you can't live without it. And so, you know, thank you through your productions for giving us something to live through and live for and for providing a mirror onto our society and for sharing your insights. Thank you, Ty Jones, Alan Gilmore, and the Classical Theater of Harlem for introducing us to future classics, continuing the tradition of the Harlem Renaissance, and all that you do to build community and bring people together through theater and your inspiring educational initiatives. We cannot be something we cannot see, and your transformative adaptations of the classics helps inspire a new generation of creatives and theater goers. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lauren Chiname with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lauren Chiname. Digital and media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.